Hello, and welcome to Being Well, the podcast. I'm Rick Hansen, and this is normally done by Forrest Hansen, my son and uh, partner here. But for technical reasons, the internet is broken where Forrest is. And so I'm doing this myself solo and hoping to draw on the resources and the companionship of Dr. Tara Brock here, who's my guest, to help me deal with my own anxieties about doing this for the first time. So Tara is the founder and guiding teacher of the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, D.C., one of the largest meditation centers in the United States. I've had the chance to be a guest teacher there once or twice, and I can tell you it's a wonderful community that Tara has pulled together. Prior to that, Tara earned her doctorate in clinical psychology and developed a clinical practice. Her teaching blends those two backgrounds wonderfully, which I can attest for. Her most recent book is called Trusting the Gold, Uncovering Your Natural Goodness, which we're going to be talking about I love this book. It just came out June 15th. And you can also find Tara through her Tara Brock podcast, which is very popular. It's one of the most listened to podcasts in the mental health broadly territory. And if you like what you were doing here, you should definitely listen to her podcast. Okay, so Tara, now I'm off script. Thank goodness. It's great to see you again. I've spoken with you many occasions, including I think we interviewed you previously for, on the podcast. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing great. And I got to interview you just a few weeks ago. So it feels really fun to be back together again. It is really sweet. We're, we're going to be in kind of a love fest here. So people <laughs> have issues with sweetness. Uh, maybe they could drink some vinegar. I don't know. Just kind of balance it out or take a little lemon juice together. So Tara, we're going to be talking about your really, for me, magnificent new book, one that I'm reading carefully and getting a lot out of. It's so heartfelt and also just profound and penetrating. So you've got this title, Trusting the Gold. What does that mean? What does it mean to trust the gold? It means that we're trusting the essence of who we all are, the essence, the goodness in life. So trusting the gold does not mean that we're trusting that we'll, you know, act well, that others won't hurt us. It's not that level. It's that even though we have all that conditioning to cause harm and be confused and deluded, that we underneath those waves, there is an essence, an ocean, a beingness that's inherently good, that's loving and aware. And so the mm. invitation really is, and Desmond Tutu said it beautifully. He said, in the midst of the darkness, don't forget the light. And there's a lot of darkness. Mm. And we're not trying to Pollyanna it, but also we need to be able to see past people's masks to the goodness. It, it's really what our world needs. In some ways, I've, I've seen it again and again that it's easier to see the goodness in others than in ourselves. It's almost as if there's a kind of taboo about the simple recognition of being a basically good person, right? We can see that in other people, even strangers at the supermarket or walking past us on the street. You can look at them, you see the weariness in their face, you see their effort, you see they're moving forward, and you just could feel, especially if you had a chance to talk with them for a minute or two, this is a basically good person. Doesn't need to be a saint. I'm sure someone who messes up, someone who has stuff they're dealing with, but they're a basically good person. It's wild, isn't it? We can grant the blessing of that recognition 
of other people so readily. And yet there's such an inhibition, such a taboo around granting ourselves that same blessing, that same recognition of being a basically good person. You're totally right on. In fact, that is the suffering that over many decades has most grabbed my attention. And yeah, yeah we've talked about it, Rick. It, I call it the trance of unworthiness because it's so pervasive, especially in contemporary society, to in some way feel like we're falling short. I remember when I wrote Radical Acceptance, I went on a book tour and one of the places that I presented at had a big poster of me and the caption under the picture was, something is wrong with me. (laughs) And it's because I was just like so aware of how we live with that type of script that we're flawed in some way and how it affects everything. So if I have right now an undercurrent of I'm falling short, I'm not enough, it'll affect how much I can take you in or really be spontaneous or present. Mm. And for most of us, there is some sort of a monitor going on in our brain most of the time that's scanning Mm. for what's wrong. As we know, it's a negativity Mm. bias because it's so dangerous to us to make a mistake. So you're right. We are very, very Mm. harsh on ourselves. Could you say more about some of the sources of this trance of unworthiness and or some of the blocks to that simple recognition and wow, the relief, (laughs) the relief that can sink in when you actually receive that benediction, that blessing offered by yourself to yourself. Uh, Of course, wonderfully also offered by other people who can see that in you, that you're a basically good person too. But there's so many blocks and difficulties about that. Uh, Some of them rooted in our personal history, some of them in society. For people listening here, I wonder if you could name some of the major sources of that obstruction to the recognition of the gold within that people can relate to. It's a fantastic question because, I mean, I think of Rumi so often who said, our task is not to seek for love, but to seek and find all the blocks we have to it and to love them. And I think that's important Mm. because... If I look at my own blocks to feeling worthiness, you know, I can I can take it on an organismic level and just sense that there's fear in this body mind that, you know, there's a sense of separation that's pretty universal in all incarnated creatures. And with that comes fear. And with that fear, there's a sense something around the corner is going to go wrong. And then mm. our more complex brains take it personally and say, something is wrong with me. Let's just really slow this down. If we could, that's very profound, actually. So here we are, we're living in this world, we're vulnerable, we feel separated, right? At a basic physical level, we're different from others. And then we get scared, right? And then you're saying, we tend to go, oh, there must be something wrong with me. Well, we feel scared and vulnerable, but we think it's our fault. We think it's because there's something wrong with me. Now, we don't hold back from thinking there's something wrong with you, too. I mean, you know, it's like, in fact, we do them both. We really do them both. And we also get hooked on an idea of being special and important. So it's not always that simple. But there are 
things that fuel that, that make it more intense for some people to be in that grip of self-aversion than others. And so let me name that because that's, we all have that an inclination to feel separate and scared and to worry about our worth. But what makes it more intense is if we're with our caregivers, if they don't have the basic capacity to love and understand us well. Mm. And of course, that's all a matter of degree. But if you think of what a newborn or new child most needs, it's to be understood, to be seen for who they are, and to be loved for that. Mm. And the more conditions that are thrown on top of that, the less the person can trust their basic belonging and goodness. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's severed belonging that happens on the family or caregiver level that stops us from trusting we're okay, mm. especially when there's trauma. Trauma equals mistrust in ourselves and others. Yeah. But then on the societal level, you know, we live in such a hierarchical caste-based society. You know, we're paying more attention to our racial caste system But what a caste system means is that there's an ongoing message fed to all those that are not on the top that you're less than. Mm. We have all the social signs to show it. That is incredibly violating to one's sense of okayness. Yeah. So here we have whether you're, you know, black, indigenous person of color, or whether you're not a straight person, or whether... (laughs) you know, whatever the non-dominant population, mm-hmm. all getting those messages. So that deepens the locked in that identity of not okay. I'm reflecting here on my own childhood. And this thing that happened, which was my parents, very loving and decent, grew up during the depression. And to get through life, they had to, I would say, function. They had to perform. My dad grew up on a ranch. They had to really take care of things or they would go hungry in the wintertime or bankrupt during the Great Depression. My mother raised in a somewhat unstable situation with a, by a single mother, kind of a ne'er-do-well, disengaged alcoholic father, apparently. She too really had to make sure things went right, you know, properly. So I kind of grew up that way and I was smart and young and skipped a grade and, you know, a lot about performance there which was separate from being a basically good person already, right? Separate from. And so for me, I learned to really chase the performance wrapper of grades and staying out of trouble and looking right. But alongside that, I had tremendous doubt about whether I was okay, whether I was a basically lovable, likable person that anyone would ever really want. And so that is another pathway. I'm sure I'm not alone in that pathway to realize that that was, for me, a major process in which or source that led to me being not in touch with the gold within, as it were. And in some ways, uh, maybe like a lot of other people, I was chasing the fool's gold for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And I had to recognize that, you know, it's appropriate to try to function and swing for the fences as best you can, but that's not the primary source of our fundamental goodness and well-being. That's a a really powerful description of how we can get hooked on feeling not okay. And there's been no major violence from 
your surrounding beings. It's more just the messages that predominated. And I had a very similar situation with a, it wasn't so dicey in terms of survival, but my father was a social activist attorney, believed in serving the world and making a difference. And I got a lot of kudos when I did well, and I didn't get any major criticism but it was quieter when I didn't do so well. Mm. And so I got hooked on, you know, my identity and being okay, got hooked on achieving. Yeah. And I had an alcoholic mom who was very depressed and anxious. Mm. And I actually thought that it was my fault and my job to help her. And of course I couldn't. Mm. And so part of the trance of unworthiness for me is I'm letting down other people. Yeah. So like you, I've had to, over the years of meditation and inner work, de-hitch from thinking that goodness comes from saving people or from (laughs) performing and learn to really look for something deeper. You know, I'm thinking of two, I think, pretty common yes buts that might come up right about now. And I wonder if you could speak to them. So the first Yes, but is, yes, but if I trust in the gold of my inner nature as being basically good and positive and so forth, will that make me arrogant? Will that make me narcissistic and conceited? It's a great question. I mean, I think that's the big fear. I often do workshops and I'll say, what is really between you and embracing yourself as you are, really loving yourself? And the fear is that I'll only get worse. I'll never change myself. I'll never be the person I want to be. And then we have, you know, Carl Rogers, a great psychologist saying, you know, it wasn't until I accepted myself just as I was that I was free to change. Mm -hmm. And I'll share um, a story that impacted me, Rick, on this one, which Mm -hmm. is really carrying forward from I can't save my mother, which is many decades later in her late 70s or 80s, she came to live with us. Mm. And she was on her own here. We were, I was it, you know, and had, we had to go to doctor's appointments and she was lonely. She, she was doing okay though. But I was building up a, so much feeling of guilt because I was really busy with deadlines and so on. And just felt like I was letting her down. And I was also really anxious about getting things done. And each time I'd spend time with her, I was like, I need to get back to my computer. So finally, I did RAIN with that. And for those listening who are new to RAIN, RAIN is a blend of mindfulness and compassion that's like an applied meditation. You can bring it to a situation where you're in a trance, where you're stuck or reactive. So it was very hard for me to just accept, okay, I'm. this is the way I am with my mom, you know, for the same reasons you just named or okay, maybe I won't get things done, you know, and fall short on that. So I did reign with it. And the recognize was I started with the anxiety about letting her down, letting students down because I wasn't getting things done. And the R of reign is to recognize. So I just recognized it. Okay, this is here. And when I, when I whisper it to myself, it actually makes it more clear. I'm not quite as identified by just whispering it. That's the R. And then A, allow. And 
just letting the whole mix of experience be there, not trying to change it, fix it, judge it, you know, that makes room for the eye of rain, which is investigate. And when I investigated, I asked what I was believing. I said, what am I believing right now? And it was that same thing that I'm falling short. I'm not, I'm not coming through for my mother or for other people. And you know, just the, the fear of uh, letting people down. And then I got in, I investigated further to feel it in my body, which is really crucial if there's to be any sort of waking up. And I could feel the kind of twist in my chest and my heart and kind of that achy feeling in my belly. And I breathed with it and just kind of, I, what I often do is put my hand on my heart. And that's the beginning of N, the nurturing. Mm. And just from some very witnessing wise place that just trust your goodness, trust that you care, mm. you know, and that'll let you come through as well as you can, you know, just trust, trust the gold, you know. And, mm. um, and then I just sat still for a while. And there's a part of rain that's called after the rain where we don't just zip on to the next thing, but actually get familiar with the experience of more presence, not being so hitched to the bad self, the anxious self, or the, you know, guilty self, mm. but just feeling who I am when I'm resting in a larger presence. And so you asked the question of what if we become more arrogant or what if, you know, we become worse? What I found was when I, I did it a lot, by the way, it wasn't a one shot, but when I was with my mom, mm. you know, whether it was our big salads at nighttime or our walks on the river, I was really with her. You know, I just, I, there's something more trusting how it all was, and I could arrive and be with her. And she died about three or four years after this. And I remember, you know, of course, I, I can just say that and feel grief as I say that to you. And I also was so aware that I didn't have any remorse because I had you know, rain had saved my life moments with her. Mm. That's the way I think of it. Rain had saved my life moments. People tell me always rain saves my life. Well, that was the feeling. And so I'm sharing that because we don't become a worse person when we start trusting the gold. We still have a discriminating wisdom that can see what wants attention, you know, when we're, when we're in some way creating harm. But in a deep way, we become more at ease with ourselves and really the best of who we are can then flow through. Beautiful story, very touching. And I feel happy for you. And I actually feel happy for your mom uh, in a way, in her spirit perhaps, that she was able to experience with you clearly, I'm sure, a, a healing, which points to another benefit in trusting the gold in ourselves. Our footprint on other people becomes lighter and also... Somehow, as we trust in our own gold, that can evoke that in them too and can lead to a, a healing with other people. There's less pressure in the space. You know, when you're trusting the gold, it doesn't feel so pressured and contracted. Yeah. And it's like you said, it actually sets off a chain reaction. Yeah. Because when you are mirroring my goodness, and I feel you do it a lot, you're very generous in that, mm. it just relaxes and opens me. And then I see more clearly the goodness in you that's mirroring my goodness, and we get into this dance. And yeah. that's what's possible. That's really what's so beautiful. 
I think also so much of the longing, I know this is true for me, so much of the longing that drives what can <laughs> become obnoxious, hunger for social supplies, impressing others, status seeking, being one up, all those other kinds of things, you know, the narcissistic hungers that are problematic. So much of it is driven by the sense of something missing inside. That's right. You know, there's a hole inside us. Yeah, something's wrong. Something's missing. We're defective. We're stained. We're broken. We're unlovable and so forth. So then we search for proofs that that's not true or distractions to make it go away. And yet, if we tap into the fundamental sense of unconditional self-worth deep inside us that we access when we're in touch with the gold, then those hungers diminish. They subside because they've been satisfied in some deep way. We actually become less self-centered when we give ourselves the gift as a person of recognizing our natural goodness, our original goodness as a person. And it's I love what you're saying. We become less self-centered because people yeah. often think of it like, well, if I'm saying, oh, it's okay, sweetheart, you're beautiful, you're good, you trust the gold, that that's like a really self-centered thing. But it's actually, if you're pragmatic about it, yeah. It relaxes the limbic system, all the fears yeah. we have about something's wrong. And when we get more relaxed, we become a more, you know, balanced, kind, intelligent person. So it yeah. does not make us more self-centered. It actually frees us to pay attention to something else. Yeah, that's really great. Okay, here's the second yes, but. Yes, yeah. uh, Yes, but if I'm really aware of what a good, wonderful person I am already and everything's already fulfilled and oh, I'm just kind of marinating in my natural goodness, I'm going to become lazy. I'm going to become a slacker. I'm going to not have that kind of drive or ambition that leads to good results in my personal life. And I'm going to not really care about social justice and helping the world become better for everybody. What do you say to that? Well, <laughs> well, um, yeah, that's a lot of people have a belief that to be active, be productive and so on, we have to have some fear in us and we have to think that something's wrong. Yeah. And it's not my experience in myself and it's not my experience in others. Uh, the people I see that are deeply dedicated to social change are actually coming from a love, not a fear. Mm. It's a love for life. It really is. Um, yeah. I can say from myself, when I was first uh, talking about radical acceptance, we were about to attack Iraq. The United States was about to attack Iraq. And people were asking me, you know, how could acceptance, radical acceptance, be the right thing? We have to get out and do something or are we radically accepting that there's climate change? Are we radically accepting racism? And the point of trusting who we are and radical acceptance of who we are is it's actually coming into presence in a profound way. It's not passive at all. When I am caught right now, and this is very current, Rick, when I am caught in my great agitation about the state of our democracy and about the violence of the polarization that's here and how people are living in utterly different realities and what that's moving us towards. When I have agitation about that, 
I tend to blame and mistrust certain figures, like personalities, certain people. And what I've learned to do now in, in the kind of pathway of trusting the gold and been doing this for years in different ways is I will turn my attention from that person. I'll make a U-turn and I'll come back to, okay, there's agitation here. Okay. And then I'll deepen my attention with that and, and sense under the agitation, there's fear that more people are going to get hurt, that there's going to be more suffering and under the fear I'll sense grief for how much mm-hmm. is already, you know, how many people right now are suffering. And then under the grief, there's caring. Mm. And when I get in touch with that caring, I am very inspired to act, but it's from much more of an um, intelligent, compassionate place than an agitated place. And I think that's the important place of attention for all of us who are deeply concerned about our society is that we have to act Mm -hmm. and we will act. We act when we don't act. Our silence is in action. But the question is, where do we want our activity to come from? And if it's going to be activity that serves the good, it needs to come from a vision and a felt sense of love. Mm. If it's coming from agitation, it just recreates the same old patterns. Yeah. So I hope that's helpful because I think it's such an important question. We do want to be motivated. It doesn't have to be from fear. I mean, what strikes me when you talk about going through those layers of anger and grief and the rest of it, for you to be willing to do that, to drop down through those layers, to move through those bardos, or I think about Dante and the seven circles of hell, you're, you're moving through these places I'm imagining that what enables you to do that is that you trust that you will come to the ground of the gold. Otherwise, you'd be afraid that you would get stuck there. Can you speak to that? Yeah, and that's what turns us into a path, not a a single practice. Yeah. I think of two pathways to trusting the gold. And one is we start right where we are with whatever waves are cooking and mm-hmm. this is the practice that you and I both teach of, of yeah. mindfulness with what is, of being with reality. So that's the pathway I was just describing. I start with agitation or, or a feeling of judgment. And, and whether it's judgment towards someone else or judgment towards myself, start with what is and keep deepening attention till we get to what is right at the source. And what we discover is even deeper than the caring is a quality of presence that's larger than any sense of identity as a bad self or a judging self. Mm. It, it brings back a sense of belonging. And that's why when I teach people RAIN, which is start where you are, that's that, that pathway. It's so important in After the RAIN to just pause and sense, well, what's here? And what we discover is a kind of field that's tender And it's a field that we can sense is behind other people's conditioning too. It's not owned by anyone. And that's really freeing. Mm. So that's the gold. The gold isn't that I'm a great caring person. The gold is that there's a field of loving awareness that's common to all of us. 
if we mm. can quiet down. Now, a lot of times it's like the sun shining and blocked by the clouds. A lot of time there's a lot of big cloud bank and you can't see the sun in ourselves or others. Mm-hmm. But there is a trust, just as you say, the more rounds of being present with what's here, the more we trust that it will unfold a larger sense of being. So that's one pathway. The second pathway, which I think you're a premier teacher of, and you've really, mm. I think you've brought it really to the forefront of our attention in the Dharma world, mm. is the pathway of intentionally looking towards the good. Mm. And you have really influenced me on that, Rick, because looking towards the good, it's like, We know we've got a negativity bias. We know we fixate on what's not good, what's wrong with us and others. We also know we have a confirmation bias, so we go around scanning for what will prove our points. And that practice of just having the intention right now, that as I I look at you, having that intention just to see what I love, see what I appreciate, Mm -hmm. it doesn't block me from seeing where you're imbalanced or what needs attention but what it does is it creates a larger space for it all that's just plain loving Mm -hmm. so it's that second training that i feel needs to be wedded with that be exactly with what is training i appreciate you saying that for me the crux of the matter is deal with the bad turn to the good take in the good and what i mean by the good is sometimes the good is to realize that you messed up and to feel a wince of healthy remorse so you don't do that again, let's say, if it's helpful to do that. And if I could just super emphasize one of the three, it would be to take in the good, to actually internalize whatever's useful in the experience, such as the realization that if you do this scary thing, of recognizing and, and allowing painful, scary feelings, sadness, self-shame, and, and anger, and all the rest of that, that there will be something on the other side. When you finally do experience that there is something on the other side or underneath it all or woven into it all that's beautiful, well, really let the sense of that sink in, slow down, so that what could otherwise just be an ephemeral passing experience, a state of mind, actually becomes woven into you increasingly as a trait, hardwired into your living body of self-acceptance and the knowing fundamentally of your own natural goodness, which then becomes a much more available refuge that you can tune into in a very embodied, somatic, you know, felt kind of way. So if, if I could, sorry for the little blurb about my stick here, just to emphasize the learning aspect of it, the internalization aspect of it, the shift from state to trait, that's just so fundamental to me. And it's the skill of skills. It's, you know, learning how to learn, right? Uh, it's the one that helps to generate and is the midwife of the rest of them. Well, for anybody listening, I would re-listen to the last three minutes of Rick, because that is such a pith teaching. That's the one that's really impacted me, that when there is a sense of what you trust, you know, when you feel gratitude, when you feel wonder, when you feel compassion towards another, pause, really let in and let those feelings completely fill you, get to know them, take three long, deep breaths and At the words I use, just get familiar, because the more familiar you get, the more it's like a a gravitational field that you come back to. So that feels really, really crucial. I love that you're 
I love that you're bringing that forward. <laughs> I went for it. Uh, yeah, I think so much of practice, because this is the space that you and I both love, just the practice. What is practice? And a lot of it is about remembrance and return. And I quote you routinely as saying the most important thing to remember is to remember the most important thing, right? <laughs> and so we have to have to remember in return, we remember, we tune in to. It's not remembering an event. It's remembering the feeling. And it's returning to that way of being in that feeling again and again and again. And as we do it again and again, happily, neurologically, the traces of that experience get woven ever more strongly inside our own brains. Um, and then increasingly, we live there. I, I think about this description by Milarepa's Life of Practice, in which he said, in the beginning, nothing came. In the middle, nothing stayed. In the end, nothing left. Mm, Isn't that profound? I love it. I love it. Yeah. And the transition, in the beginning, we can't feel it, but we try. Okay. In the middle, we can feel it, but it's it's just a state. It's not yet woven into us. And then in the end, we're cooked, you know, with regard to that little thing, like being a little more patient with the neighbor next door who watches the wrong news channel, <laughs> whatever you think the wrong one is, uh, to a profound awakening, you are there. You're established in it. Nothing leaves you. You're You're in touch with it consistently. I think one of the challenging pieces on the way for most people is letting in love, mm. like really sensing that others love us. I remember mm. a time, I think it was in my 30s, where I knew intellectually that I was loved by many people, but I realized the rarity of actually, you know, somatically experiencing that yeah. kind of bathed in, in love. And that became, okay, this is what I'm going to practice. and. It takes intention because what I found was I defended against it because it felt really, really scary. It was like if I started mm. opening and letting in, I would get in touch with what was unlovable. Mm. So it took moving with that, but it became an active part of my practice. And what I found was the more I did it, the more it wasn't a self being loved. It was a porousness that, that love was washing through this space of presence. I think what happens when we resist wow. love is that we get very solidified as a separate self. And as we really let ourselves feel others' love, that armoring dissolves. And there's and it's not a self being loved. It's just love is, it's not you love me. It's there is a space of love that I am now able to inhabit. So I've been encouraging people to really explore that taking in because mm. first thing we find is how we don't, and that's okay. Yeah. Wow, that's very deep. Well, what do you what do you do though with someone who says, I'm pretty isolated, maybe after COVID especially, and I don't have people in my life who who love me, actually. I, d I really don't. Yeah. And there are people that don't have anybody that they really feel love them. They may have people that they trust in some way mm -hmm. and they feel some sense of connection with, but they don't feel really loved by. What I say is we start with whatever tendril connects us to the world. Mm -hmm. For some people, it's a dog or a cat. For some people, it's a tree. I and mean, I have, in the last couple of years, 
developed very alive relationship with trees. Uh-huh. And, and a story I shared that you might remember, uh, Carlo Rovelli is a quantum physicist who has attracted my attention recently, and he's a very wise being. The crux of his angle on quantum theory is relationship, that we exist in a web of relationship, and just waking up to that right. will allow us to feel wonderful and free and help each other in the world. So when he's asked to give talks in public, before he gives the talk, he'll walk outside, he'll find a tree, he'll touch the tree. Mm. And then he finds that he's back really at home in his world and he goes and gives the talk. Uh. And I thought that ritual was so beautiful because I do kind of like less formally things like that all the time where I'll in some way just assume I have a, a tree that's in my office at home, a false Aurelia. Yeah. And I'll just assume that we're in relationship, that we're friends, that that tree is in some way wanting, needing, and appreciating me and vice versa. It may be at a very primitive level, but love exists at primitive levels. It exists at all levels. Mm. So the assumption wakes up the consciousness. And I'll share one more thing uh, while I'm on on this one, (laughs) is that um, I've talked a lot about basic goodness over the years, and you and I talked a little bit about Einstein's famous statement that Mm -hmm. this is really the most important question we have is, is the universe a basically friendly place or benevolent? In other words, is there some intrinsic love in the awareness that gives rise to this creation? And so I was giving a talk on that, and my mother, who I've mentioned, she would come in and out of town with me as I drove to teach talks and, and attend class. And she was a Barnard philosophy major. And she loved to take issue with me when she had a chance. She just, that was part of what she enjoyed just for fun. And boy, we came back from a class where I was talking about this basic loving awareness that, you know, is intrinsic to our being. And she just went on, she what is makes love and awareness more basic than fear and badness? I mean, is, is there basic goodness in racism? Is there basic goodness in capital punishment? You know, and I basically agreed with her that there's no cognitive proof that love is intrinsic to this universe. Clearly there's not. But what I did say was when I make that assumption, when I act as if my life I feel like a homecoming, you know, I feel like, oh, Mm. it's actually just the assumption brings it alive. Looking towards that helps me. And when I get really quiet and the waves settle, there's no question that the love and awareness is there. And I'm not different from the rest of the world. Like I'm, I'm part of the earth body. And so it has to be everywhere else too. So that I shared that with her, that that's where my trust comes from. But mostly I shared with her that I'm pragmatic, that even though we don't know, it's useful to, to assume or look towards and see what happens because it wakes up something in us that's precious. Yeah. I mean, we're in the deep end of the pool here. And what's struck me in reading your book is that, in effect, you talk about three different kinds of gold. The first kind is the gold inside us, as it were, in our nature, our good intentions, our fundamental sweetness, a desire to love and be loved. You know, it's deep down inside, I think, just about everybody, uh, naturally, we may 
be disturbed from that home base in a kind of chronic inner homelessness even, that home may well be covered over, so we're not so aware of it, but it really is native to us. It's in, okay? That's the first kind. The second kind of gold you talk about, I'll, I'll say it in a way, is out there. It's recognizing the goodness in others. I'm looking at your face right now, really seeing your benevolence, your kindness, your goodness, your wisdom, uh, and that's good. We And we can also look out and we can see that the universe and the forests and the trees are giving to us. The, the green growing things give us air to breathe. You know, the, the mass of planet Earth gives us gravity so we don't float away, you know, and Marissa, the big bang bubbled into being. I mean, what an incredible gift, right? We can do that. Okay, that's two. So far, so good. So far, so good. We're still inside the frame of secular stuff and science and, the, you know, natural, ordinary reality. And then, as you did just a moment ago, you speak to a third kind of good that seems transcendental. It seems distinct in some way from the time-bound, conditioned, clockwork unfolding of the Big Bang universe and something timeless and universal, transcendent, transpersonal. And so I'm imagining first, is it okay for someone to read your book who just focuses on the first two, who doesn't have any patience with the third or doesn't believe it's true, even dogmatically, let's say. And related to that, why has it been important for you to include the third along with the first two? Yeah, wow. It's a rich one. Well, first, everyone is invited to read because there's bound to be things that are framed or expressed in ways that don't resonate in anything. So mm. that's part of the juiciness. At least it's alive and engaging. So please, you know, whatever perspective. The second is, I don't think of them as separate domains. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a, a kind of a unitive, my own experience uh, and way of expressing reality is that reality is fundamentally loving awareness expressing itself in different forms. So there's this timeless presence that then the only usage for the word time is that it comes at in forms, you know, mm. that we, that's when time and space gets, starts to get tracked, mm. but that it's, it's like the ocean and waves. It's there's this, this timeless reality that we're living as forms. So it's really, I am that reality and this forms an expression of that reality and that loving awareness is shining through. And I think that's what Thomas Merton said when he said, you know, that the sacred, the divine is shining through all of life, all the time, that this isn't a story or a fable, it's truth. Mm. So I start with actually that bigger timeless place and sense the world coming out of that. Now that it's fine if that doesn't resonate for others. I think what's most important is knowing that if we're honest and present with what's in the moment, it will open us to a heart space, to an awareness that's really precious. And that that it'll and that awareness will bleed through everything in our life. Mm-hmm. So that that's the path is to just trust that that pathway to that love and awareness is possible. And that, that was the Buddha's basic teaching. He said, I would not teach this if it was not possible. So that's one piece. And the other is knowing that if you leave listening to this and you have a little more intention to take somebody that's close to you and to pause and reflect on them and sense, well, 
what do I really love about that being? You know, and to let yourself feel the love. Mm. And then this is the whole deal. Let them know in some way what you appreciate. Be a mirror of goodness. It is so powerful. Yeah. I, I can say that in my life, people that have consciously mirrored my goodness, I can remember certain times through my whole life that it just relaxed me open into my own creativity and open-heartedness. Yeah. I think about key people in my own life who hardly knew at the time that their relaxed, natural, no big deal, really, very normal appreciation of me as a kid having lunch in their little lunchroom in high school, let's say, or, you know, someone I knew later on, whatever, really had a big impact. And that turned it around to kind of realize that moment when we recognize the goodness in someone, and also I would say the possibilities mm -hmm. that are available for them in this life that maybe are bigger and wider than the kind of compartments or the, I think of the invisible cage in which they've been living. Uh, you can live larger, live more freely. You really can actualize and manifest in all kinds of new ways. To, to offer that to someone is often the simplest thing. You know, it's a server in a restaurant. It's a casual interaction. It's someone who emails you and you take two minutes to email them back in a generous and respectful way. Just that alone can really transform someone's life to realize we can create, we can offer such benefit, such contribution. It's such a very little kind of way. It's so highly leveraged, et cetera. The former business consultant in me can really appreciate the leveraged return on investment of that kind of simple kindness and respect for other people. It's great. And when we do it, it actually sets off a biochemical flow through us that only That's makes right. us happier and freer. It's, yeah. it's really about connection. I mean, that whole understanding that we suffer because we have forgotten our belonging to one another. Yeah. And when we realize how much we influence each other, that everything I'm experiencing now is in some way being impacted by the quality of your presence and how you look and just energetically what's here. And mm -hmm. also the feeling of the field of those of you who will be with us. It's the future is part of what impacts us, that sense of all of us reflecting together on, on these kind of qualities of human heart. Yeah. We're not separate. You know, I know we're going to be finishing up soon and I wonder if we could kind of bring it home here with a particular situation or case. Uh, in other words, in your book, you have these three major themes, trusting the gold through, uh, in terms of truth, love, and freedom. And I'm wondering, uh, you had no idea I was going to spring this on you. If you could imagine someone who perhaps has been traumatized or experienced a lot of quote unquote micro traumas that add up to a macro trauma, mm -hmm. maybe as a result of structural prejudice, discrimination in society, perhaps not. And someone who feels at some level like there's a very strong feeling in them, maybe with related beliefs of being defective or stained. Maybe they did something that was bad and they feel really ashamed of it and they feel that they're just corrupted by what they did and nothing will ever cleanse and, and heal them, let's say. 
How would a person, if you could do this, how would they touch into the themes of truth, love, and freedom in the context of your book uh, to find some kind of healing and peace? Yeah, well, as you were speaking, I my, I let my mind kind of open up to see what example would come forward. And one is of a, a woman that I've worked with on and off over the years who, alcoholic, and when she was raising her daughters, she was very absent and created a lot of harm through alcoholism. And so as an adult, there's a lot of dividedness in the family and she can't forgive herself for the harm. I mean, her she's got a, a daughter with an eating disorder, a daughter that is, her, is unable to form relationships with others, a lot of pain. So I've worked with her, uh, you know, like she would say, well, why should I forgive myself? Look what's happened. And one of the questions I asked her was, you know, does it make you a better mother and more able to connect with them now when you hate yourself for that? And she she knew the sense of that, but she had that internal feeling of being a monster. Okay. Mm. So we started with, instead, not, we didn't start with, okay, so what's happening inside you open to that, you know, feeling of aversion. We started with what I call resourcing our just being able to be getting some nourishment. And this is the looking towards the good side of it, where in our interaction, I would find out, well, when do you feel in some way connected or held or okay? And she didn't have many examples, but she did say that she had a sister that she knew loved her and she felt connected with me. So her first practice, Rick, was just to bring us to mind and and get a felt sense of of being held in this that she was cared about. Mm-hmm. And honestly, we probably worked on just that for eight months, you know, where she just felt that she wasn't alone, that she was she kind of had spirit allies, people that cared, kind of holding. And that's when we could start doing rain. Because before you can do rain, you have to make sure you're not going to get re-traumatized. There has to be enough safety. Yeah. So we started with looking towards the goodness. And then we went to rain and she could start recognizing, okay, self-hate, self-hate, allow it to be there, start sensing the beliefs of, you know, the harm she's caused, the feelings in her body. And she realized how those feelings of badness had been with her her whole life, way before she was a mother. <laughs> And when she realized kind of the landscape of her life, that she had been caught in feeling bad, damaged goods for so long and realized the impact on her life, Mm. she started weeping. And that's when, that's the moment I think of the ouch moment. There's a soul sadness when we can see the shape of our lives and how much we've suffered. It's not until she could sense her own suffering that she could begin nurturing that she could actually hold her own being with kindness. And that's when we practiced, and again, months and months and months, you know, she would have a phrase she would say to herself, you know, darling, I care about this suffering, which comes from Thich Nhat Hanh, mm. over and over again. And then she'd sit quietly, and just the way I describe for myself, she'd sense there's just more presence here, that this presence and tenderness is more the truth I am of who I am mm. than any. That's really important. Than any story I've ever told about myself. 
Yeah. And that's what you've been talking about when you talk about installing so that it becomes a trait. Mm -hmm. Because it's a a passing state if at any time you can get caught back up in the stories and feel like you're bad, but it becomes a trait when you start touching that presence and knowing that's who I am. Yeah. Well, the upshot of the story is that she was able to, from that place of, of trusting that and still sensing all of her woundedness and how it played out, she was able to make reestablish the contact and connection that's gradually, it's been really gradual, building the trust with her daughters. That's really beautiful. So we have there her facing the truth, all of the truth, right? Yeah. The truth of the misdeeds and also the truth of everything else that led her to be an alcoholic and the larger context. And I'm sure the way she was let down by others who, if they'd come through more, maybe the father of the kid or her partner, the children rather, uh, that would have made a difference. So recognize the truth of that and feeling underneath it all her, her love, the love that was still intact, that capacity maybe shrunk down perhaps into a little green thing, but still alive and intact that with some watering her love could flourish and flower and opening into a kind of freedom, yeah, a freedom of not being identified with that history, um, having had it. But I think Maya Angelou or someone has a close line, something like, you know, my, my troubles have happened to me, but they do not define me, that kind of thing. Yeah, and she, that, said that's the, she said it better than I did. Well, still, but that's <laughs> the that's the place. That's the wisdom yeah. that our identity shifts. That we're yeah. we're not identified with the stories, and there's that's when we can sense the the sacred shining through. Uh, maybe if it's okay, we could finish with uh, a question that I know Forrest really hoped we could get at. Uh, it's one that's near and dear to him too, which is you started with this point actually. We can trust in the good in ourselves and other people. And how do we do that? And how does it actually help us while alongside that, recognizing the truth of bad intentions in some other people or bad conduct, live and consequential now in other people, including at the level of social justice, which I know is a is a topic that you're very engaged in and, and know a lot about. How can you put those together? Yeah. The phrase I love, and this comes from Roshi Joan Halifax, is having a strong back and a soft front. Hmm. And I, I think it, it's really inspired me because the strong back means that we have that discriminating wisdom that says, you know, I'm not going to disclose a confidence to you because I know you will violate me yeah. or the discriminating wisdom that says we cannot ally ourselves with your group because your group is is so fundamentally caught in anger and violence that we don't trust how you'll treat us or whatever it is mm-hmm. discriminating wisdom allows us to have that strong back i can feel myself sitting up straighter yeah i see that <laughs> have <Da-da>. that clarity <laughs> yeah have that clarity make boundaries, take care of ourselves. We're supposed to protect ourselves from harm. We're supposed to take care of each other. So that means we have to have that clarity and presence. Mm -hmm. The soft front means we do that and we keep as well as we can that kind of open heart that can see in the other, even when they are violating in the worst ways, 
that in some way their conditioning is driving them and that there's something more there. Mm -hmm. There's a potential. It may not be manifesting, but to hold that open. And one Tibetan teacher says that the aspiration is to never give up on anybody. Mm. And that is like, wow, you know? Yeah. I see the possibility of humans destroying habitable life on the planet. And that may be so. It may be that our conditioning and our ignorance drives us to that. We see daily humans violating each other. And yet, if we can stay open to what's possible, it gives more possibility mm-hmm. to having that goodness to living from loving awareness yeah. and to living with each other from that awareness. I find that, um, like a lot of th- things, there are two ways to go about the same goal, let's say. And whether it's personal ambition and building a career, you know, making things happen around you, or at the level of helping society, we can go about it, as I put it, kind of from the red zone or the green zone and I think I'm going to shift over to the gold zone or something <laughs> like that. Anyway. I love that. And the truth is we can get stuff done from greed, hatred, and delusion and drivenness and contraction and stress and self-hatred and self-criticism. Yeah, you can get stuff done, but wow, is there a lot of collateral damage along the way for yourself and others? And wow, over time, it will degrade your performance. It will wear you down and take years off your life. So the point is, we can still accomplish these beautiful things. We can still dream big dreams and swing for the fences while coming more from an ongoing felt in touchness with the gold that's within us, within others, and within everything altogether. I love it. I love the way you described the way we go chasing after fool's gold. Yeah. And that and it's true, we use substitutes that work temporarily. Yeah. They we wouldn't keep doing them if we didn't get some sort of a fix from them. Oh yeah. Whatever it is. And yeah. when we go into the real gold zone or green zone, that's when transformation becomes possible. Mm. You know, it's there's right. a beautiful description. One person writes, I think it's Anthony DeMello, that says it's lovely to serve each other and to support each other, but to see each other in our basic mm. essence of goodness, that is the grounds of true transformation and healing. Letting that land as we finish here. One of the great pleasures for me with you is to have felt seen by you. Uh, it's such a simple thing, seemingly, and yet so, so impactful. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you personally. And also thank you for taking the time here uh, and offering so much to so many other people. Well, it's mutual. I'm always delighted. It's a fun way for us to express our our care and our our paths. Yeah. We'll say more in other ways, but uh, I very much encourage people to look into your work. It's just really, it's unique. I don't casually say that. It's fantastic. And I've benefited immensely from it myself. And uh, in addition to your books, you teach a lot. You run programs, including for mindfulness teachers and other kinds of things. And you have your community um, in Washington, D.C. that's accessible online through your podcast, too. And tarabrock.com, I believe that's your main website. Yeah, people should definitely check that out. So again, my friend, my teacher, my buddy, my sister... 
Thank you, Tara Brock. Mm, thank you, dear. Blessings.